0: WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you.
1: you. WERU Community Radio has a party coming up on Saturday, May 6th from 11 to 2, and everyone is invited. Our birthday celebration right here at the radio station on Route 1 in East Orleans. Is a great opportunity to celebrate 29 years of WERU and to meet people who love and support the radio station, listeners and volunteers alike. Listen and dance to great live music headlined by People of Earth with other artists to be announced. We'll have delicious food, a music sale, station tours and more, and the whole thing will be broadcast live on WERU. That's the WERU birthday celebration, Saturday, May 6th from 11 to 2 here at WERU on Route 1, heading east, six miles from Bucksport. We hope you can make it.
2: Support for WERU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Cire de Monde Spring in Acadia National Park and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations
1: and one mission, to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. About 10 seconds before the hour, 10 o'clock, Wabanaki Windows time. Time enough to tell you that this is WERU-FM 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming live at weru.org.
0: Welcome to Webenaki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Webenaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webenaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. My guests today are Eric Menert, Chief Judge of the Penobscot Nation Tribal Court, Sherry Mitchell, Indigenous Rights Attorney and Director of the Land Peace Foundation, uh, as well as a Penobscot Nation tribal member. And later on in the show, we'll have uh, Secretary of State uh, Matthew Dunlap. Our topic today is the uh, Indian Child Welfare Act. And uh, the reason we're talking about this uh, Child Welfare Act is because pe- a lot of people don't understand what it is. Um, and we're going to try to uh, let, pe- let you know exactly what it is and what it does and, and why we have it. Um, The other reason we're talking about that today is uh, because there's an effort by the far right, uh, led by the Goldwater Institute, uh, to abolish that act. So, um, uh, first of all, I want to check with uh, Sherry. Are you on the line? I am. Good morning. Great. Good morning, Sherry. (laughs) Eric? Good morning, (laughs) Eric. Okay. Um, So let's start talking about this, the Indian Child Welfare Act. And uh, I do want to say that uh, just to briefly tell you what it is, it's uh, it's, it's an act that uh, was enacted in 1978 because of the disproportionately high rate of removal of Indian children from their traditional homes, and especially from Indian culture as a whole. Uh, before enactment, as many as 25 to 35% of all Indian children were being removed from their homes and placed in non-Indian homes. Uh, and uh, that really became uh, a concern because we were losing our, our, uh, our future. So, um, Sherry, I'm going to let you talk first about the, your, uh, your take on the Indian Child Welfare Act uh, and how important that act is.
3: Well, I think it's incredibly important because it addresses the long-standing threat to tribal culture, to tribal people um, that began during the boarding school era where Native children were taken away from their families and attempts to force assimilation of those children. Uh, It also is um, one of the um, identified aspects of genocide under the... um, Convention on the Pre- Prevention and Punishment of Genocide, Article 2E, uh, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group is is recognized as an act of genocide. And so when the Indian Child Welfare Act was first formed, they were trying to address that very issue, um, that this was an ongoing act of genocide against Indian people by forcibly removing their children from their homes, their communities, from their tribes, and placing them with non-native people um, was a, a way to diminish uh, the future existence of the tribes and to uh, eliminate uh, further attempts to eliminate tribal people altogether here in this country. And right now, today, um, in there's a big case that's going on, the Oguala Sioux versus uh, Van Hunick, where... The Native children in that state are 11 times more likely to be taken away from their families than non-Native children, and over 1,000 children have been removed um, against the regulations of ICWA and in violation of the Due Process um, Clause of the Constitution, and not been giving proper um, process at the hearings. They've continued... despite the fact that they have been ordered to stop by a federal judge. They've continued to do this. It was 600 at the time that the case first started. Now it's 1,000 children that have been taken, uh, and their parents aren't being given any opportunity to even speak on their own behalf. They're not given any opportunity to face the evidence against them. They're not being given any opportunity to testify at the 48-hour hearings or to present any evidence at all and sometimes these kids remain in uh, foster care for up to a year before the parents actually get processed. And so the violations against the standard procedures for removal of children are being violated in extremely high numbers when it comes to the taking of Native children today in 2017. And so the importance of the Indian Child Welfare Act remains uh, vital to the preservation of Indian culture and to the preservation of Indian families.
0: Judge Menard.
4: Yeah, I think, uh, in, in fact, uh, that was a, the exact case that I was been looking at as well—the um, Hunuk case, um, where actually they, the tribe, sued a state court judge, and as Jerry had talked about, uh, a federal judge found that the state court judge was violating due process. When you talk about uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act, I, I think it's important to to look at what it does with respect to child protection. Child protection is governed by Title IV-E of the Social Security Administration Act, and that puts certain requirements on the state every time it gets involved with the uh, taking of a child. And what what Sherry is talking about is that there is a, if the child is taken without an opportunity for the parents to be heard, it's called an ex parte hearing. The uh, parents have a right within 48 hours to have a hearing. And at that hearing, they're supposed to be advised of certain other rights. And in the Van Hunek case, um, the judge was not advising the Indian parents of the rights that they had to present evidence. Uh, to testify, to challenge the state's evidence. In fact, uh, they were making specific findings um, that things were occurring without any evidence at all, uh, They specifically with regards to what's called active efforts to reunify the family, which is required under federal law for the states to get Title iv funding. What ICWA does is say, okay, states, you get this Title IV-E funding, but there are additional requirements that you must meet when it comes to Native American children. And it requires uh, the uh, state to actively engage the tribe in a conversation about what should happen with regards to the children of the tribe.
0: So, and so there was a huge uh, issue with uh, states removing children from their homes and, and uh, basically adopting them out, and those, and those children would never go back. And so it was sort of like an extension of the uh, boarding school era. Uh, but there was a, a committee on, uh, on Indian affairs, and they did a, a study of what was going on. And Congress, uh, this was a congressional committee, and they recognized that there were uh, some uh, primary factors that con- contributed to the high rates of uh, Indian child removal. And they cited four uh, one being a lack of culturally competent state child welfare standards for assessing the fitness of Indian families, uh, number two, systemic due process violations against both Indian children and their parents during child custody procedures, Uh, three, economic incentives favoring removal of Indian children from their families and communities, and four, uh, social conditions in Indian country. And those conditions remain, I think, basically the same. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. So, uh, I mean, if, if we took... Each one of those, like lack of cultural competence uh, from from the state in in the standards and assessing fitness, I mean, there's really they don't understand. The social workers do not understand the difference uh, between a native family, a native community, and non-native community. They apply those standards across the board.
4: Oftentimes, what you see in with, with social workers and it's a challenge because they have such a heavy caseload in the state but they come from they're educated in colleges they come from suburban middle class backgrounds and they come out and they think that everything ought to be the same as what they grew up with and they do not understand tribal cultures they don't understand one of the things that, that Congress talked about was that they don't understand the extended family um, how the extended family works in tribal communities and that if a parent has fallen into difficulty that there are other members of the family that will step in to care for the child and that is something that that has been an ongoing challenge um, out there for state uh, social workers so I think that the point that you make that there is no cultural there is a lack of cultural competency is uh, an absolutely accurate one that continues today.
3: Yeah, I think that another problem is that you have people who are acting uh, within the judiciary who have never had one class on federal Indian law. They don't even know that there is a body of law called federal Indian law. And so you have all of these attorneys and judges who are making decisions um, on these cases that don't have any knowledge whatsoever of Indian law. And they're not required to study Indian law. There are only three states right now in the United States that require attorneys to have some Indian law training in order to pass their bar. If you're going to practice law in this country where these laws apply, every attorney taking every bar should have to take an Indian law class. And the fact that that's not done contributes to the problems that we have in regard to some of these laws. Uh, when you get to uh, some of the things that are going on right now, there are a couple of organizations that are uh, purposely trying to dismantle Indian rights across the board.
0: Right, and we're going to and get into the- that in a minute here, Sherry. <laughs> we wanted okay. to do the background first. Okay. Uh, because we want people to understand the foundation of this this act first. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, One other thing that
3: I'd just like to point out is that in South Dakota, which is is a, a pretty extreme case, uh, but not entirely different from other places, um, less than 9% of the population of that state is uh, Native, but 52% of the children in the state's foster care system are Native. And so when you have staggering statistics like that, um, it just demonstrates that there is something very, very wrong with the process. Um, and we also have um, tribal well attorneys that are representing tribes who don't have the knowledge necessary to be managing these types of cases. And so oftentimes they'll drop the ball as well because they've not been properly trained um, and they they don't, know what the standard procedures are for dealing with ICWA cases. And so when they come up against these cases, um, they often will sidestep tribal jurisdiction as well and um, will go along with what they've already been trained to do within the um, non-native social service system. And so, you know, there's a gross lack of education, a gross lack of um, competence amongst those who are handling these cases, which I think contributes to the problem greatly.
0: Yeah, and I I do want to say I was on the Judiciary Committee in the state legislature for like nine years, and every time we uh, voted on confirmation of a judge, I would ask that candidate the question if they were familiar with the Indian Child Welfare Act. Nine times out of ten, they would say no. Mm -hmm. So not only that, but you've got legislators setting policy uh, on the state level, uh, that know nothing about uh Indian law or or history or uh, anything else, so i 've always said it 's kind of like asking a carpenter to do brain surgery so <laughs> right and and you know and that 's the situation we 're in right now. Uh, they just need to start educating themselves and figure out how to how to get uh, some workshops and stuff in the system
4: I know. I know that uh Chief Justice softly has has comprised in uh a children's task force and has uh one of the subcommittees on that and has uh she has mandated that there be discussions about ICWA and and making sure that individuals in the judiciary are informed of ICWA. um
0: yeah and Sherry, you addressed the systemic uh violations I think when them not knowing uh, the law uh, and just overstepping their bounds, and uh, then there's a third one. It's economic incentives,
3: right? They're monetizing the removal of these children,
0: exactly. And that yeah. that happens all over the country, and it specifically happens or happened. I don't know. It probably still is happening here. It's in Maine. happening. Yeah. yeah,
4: yeah. What happens with the monetizing is that Title Four E provides a Um, subsidy for any foster parent that takes a child into care, and it particularly provides a substantial subsidy if that children has um, special needs. And so what occurs is that foster parents will take a children into care and, and that they're making money on caring for the children, they're monetizing the children.
3: Not only that, but they're also fast-tracking these children for adoption. And um, they're, they're adopting them out through private adoptions that also provide uh, back-end payments to the, the groups that are negotiating those adoptions. So all the way around, whether they keep them in foster care or they move them out to adoption, they're making money. Essentially, selling our children.
0: Exactly. Um, It was. uh, I'm just looking at the the background of the of the Child Welfare Act and why Congress acted to put that uh, act into law. And one of the things that uh, they found was that various groups, uh, such as, and I'm going to name one of them, is the uh, uh, the Church of uh, Latter Day Saints. Uh, had an Indian placement program that removed Indian children from their tribes and into church members' homes. So by the 1970s, they had about 5,000 Indian children who were living in Mormon homes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, most of the, you know, I say most social workers are conditioned by, and I quote, the best interest of the child. Uh, But the best interest of the child is is seen differently through our culture, you know, as, as the, the regular uh, majority culture would see it. So it's very different.
3: Well, I think it's seen differently through, um, you know, these lenses of individual worldviews as well. So you have people who have a specific worldview that's based on their religious beliefs. Um, the Mormons originally equated Indians with uh, being the children of the devil when they first came here. And so the lens through which they viewed Native children um, is going to be very different than the lens through which Native people view their own children. You also have centuries of uh, racism that have existed in this country that are continue to go on today where we look at what happened in Standing Rock where the white people in Bismarck were able to say, no, this is too dangerous to have anywhere near our water. And then the Indian people at Standing Rock were forced at gunpoint to accept that risk, uh, not near their water, but right through their water source. And so we still have rampant racism that's going on in this country in regard to uh, Native people. And so when you consider the worldview that people are operating under, their view of the best interest of the child based on racist beliefs is going to be to remove the child from the native home and they will go out of their way to make, um, that possible. And so, uh, we have to address so many issues, uh, still in order to, um, address all of these underlying causes for the creation of the Indian child welfare act. And, um, the need for that act to continue in full force is even greater in my opinion, today, because of some of the things that we're seeing um, these racist attitudes being emboldened and coming out of the woodwork again.
4: I think that's something that, that you were talking about earlier, Donna, with that it really is a continuation of the boarding school era. And, and that's what Sherry has hit on is that during the boarding school era, there was an actual philosophy that saved uh, the child, killed the Indian. That they would take the children out of homes, put them into boarding schools, and try and eradicate any vestige of, uh, of tribal culture or community from the children. And that is, unfortunately, what, what can occur oftentimes when you have children placed outside of uh, the community.
0: Yeah, I want to... Uh and I think it's a good—that's a good segue into the uh, the Goldwater Institute uh, and their and their uh, philosophy or whatever. Um, the uh, just to explain what the Goldwater uh, Institute is, it's uh, its based out of uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and it's conservative and libertarian public policy. It's—it's it's a think tank. And the, uh, the mission is to defend and strengthen the freedom guaranteed to all Americans in the constitutions of the United States and all 50 states. The organization was established in 1988 with the support of former U.S. Senator Barry Goldwater. The organization was primarily a public policy research organization until 2007 when it added a litigation arm Becoming the first state-based policy organization to do so, Goldwater's litigation arm, the Schraff Norton Center for Constitutional Litigation, engages in lawsuits against government entities uh, access, uh, across the United States. Since so now they're focused uh, on eliminating the Indian Child Welfare Act, uh, and their reasoning for that, they say. Uh, the uh, let me just read the a little bit here from what they're saying on their page. <clears throat> uh, the pages uh, have asked the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene. This is a case, Indian Child Welfare Act case. Uh, what is that? Let, let, just let me go through the. Okay, here. L- let me just say this. Okay. All Indian children are citizens of the United States entitled to equal protection of the law, uh, said Sandifer, who is their, uh, one of their uh, litigation attorneys. It's disgraceful that in the 21st century, our laws still segregate Native American children and disregard their best interests simply because of who their great-great-great-great-grandparents were we will not rest until Native American children are treated as equals and their best interest treated as the most important question in all of child welfare proceedings. Any comments on that? Plenty. (laughs) I bet there is. Yeah. Well, if uh, Indian children were to be
3: treated equally, they wouldn't be taken from their homes at a rate that's 11 times higher than the rest of the population. We'll start with that, and um, to consider that uh, white mainstream America is the marker for equality, that someone's own cultural background, their own um, tribal connections and familial connections don't rate as uh, bearing the same... Equality as what they view these children can be given within white society is a racist view. Um, I think also they um, aren't looking at um, the constitutional requirements that are being violated in regard to the taking of these children. For instance, in the Van Heunick case, um, parents weren't even afforded the right to counsel and their children were being taken away. They, they're, you know, by law, they have a right to be represented when their children are being taken away. They weren't even being provided with that right. They weren't being provided with the right to confront the evidence against them. Their constitutional rights, their due process rights are being violated grossly. Um, this is not equality. And so all of the things that are being claimed um, by the Goldwater Institute, which also, I think, if you look at the players that are, um, contributors to the Goldwater Institute who are a part of that group. Um, you're going to see the same people who have been systematically attacking Indian rights across the board, land rights, water rights. Um, you know, they were the ones that were behind the baby Veronica um, case that were funding in the background, that case. That uh, they have an agenda to dismantle Indian rights across the board because they represent some of the most notorious players in industry. And so Indian people have specific rights that provide protections for them and for their lands and their peoples that are unique within this country. And their purpose is to dismantle those rights in order to pave the way for industry to move across this country unobstructed. And one of the ways that they're doing that is by trying to continue these acts of genocide to eliminate tribal people through the removal of their children. But it's important to recognize that this is only one way that they're doing it, that they're also involved um, through other arms. There's a whole group of attorneys who call themselves the Indian Killers. Um, We came up against them when I worked for Frederick's Peoples and Morgan in Boulder, Colorado, where they were trying to get tribes terminated, to get all of their rights and recognition as tribes eliminated so that industry did not have to follow the rules and regulations that were set forth for tribal land. So, you know, this is part of a bigger scheme, um, and we can't separate it from that larger scheme if we hope to be able to address it properly.
4: And I, I want a couple of other statistics that go along with that equal protection analysis that Sherry did. Is the uh, In a case called the Mississippi Choctaw Indians, the Supreme Court found that the adoption rate of Indian children was eight times that of non-Indian children and approximately 90% of it, the Indian placements were in non-Indian homes. Um, so it's not equal anywhere across the board. And I think the other argument that that Sherry has raised is the issue of sovereignty and the complete lack of recognition of sovereignty by the Goldwater Institute. That That is what has – is at the bottom of the Goldwater Institute's Uh, attacks on ICWA is that they are trying to destroy tribal sovereignty.
0: Now, there's a quote from this uh, Goldwater Institute. They said, uh, It's disgraceful that 50 years after Brown v. Board of Education, we still have racial segregation in this country and not separate but equal, but separate and substandard. This is a law that makes it harder to protect Native American children against abuse or neglect and makes it extremely difficult for them to find permanent adoptive homes. Comments? Well, it's,
3: it's disgusting that after 40 years of having ICWA in place, that our children are still being forcibly removed from our homes in violation of the law, both the ICWA law and constitutional law. And uh, families are being torn apart that we're still being subjected to acts of genocide in this country. That, to me, is what is disgusting. And so, um, you know, the, the position of the Goldwater Institute, um, when they're talking about, uh, what they're talking about is forced assimilation. It's not about avoiding segregation. It's about forced assimilation. Um, our students, you know, go to school with other children. Um, if we choose to have that scenario play out. We have the right to be able to educate our children within our own homes, but more so, we have the right to be able to raise our own children. And the, um, the statements that they're making are um, just, in my opinion, absurd, and they have real no real basis in the law. In fact, they're furthering these um, racist acts of assimilation that began long ago in this country and they're really promoting uh, a continued assimilation of our children by fighting for the right to take our children away from us they are not creating any sense or scope of equality um at all within this system
0: okay um like to at this time uh, i'll just do a little station uh break here this is weru and This is Wabenacki-Windows, and uh, I'm your host, Donna Loring, and we're talking about the Indian Child Welfare Act, Um, and we have a guest, uh, Chief Chief Judge of the Penobscot Nation Tribal Court, Eric uh, Menert, Sherry Mitchell, who's uh, uh, an attorney, and a Penobscot Nation member, and now on the line, we also have Secretary of State uh, Matthew Dunlop, Matt?
2: Hey Donna, how are you?
0: I'm good. Have you had a chance to hear any of our conversation?
2: Yes, I've been listening with with some a great deal of interest.
0: Okay. Um, so I've I've noticed that uh, uh, Judge Menard's been jotting down some stuff. So I'm going to let him go, and then uh, you go next, uh, Matt.
4: Okay. I think that that the one of the the things that is particularly offensive about the Goldwater Institute's assertions is that there is a um, complete disregard for the services that the uh, First Nations can bring to bear for their own children and a lack of respect for what the tribal laws, uh, the existent tribal laws that each of the First Nations has, as well as for the tribal courts to suggest that tribal courts cannot act in a way that takes into consideration the best interest of the children while they're in that very community um, is patently offensive um, the tribal laws the tribal courts are in the best position to work with uh, the families and reunifying and rehabilitating the individuals. Uh, I think one of the the uh, one of the most amazing things that I've had an, an opportunity to be part of in the Penobscot Nation Tribal Court is that it is a problem-solving court. That was a mandate that was given to the court by the chief and, and counsel of the Penobscot Nation. And what that means is when a parent comes to the, the Penobscot Nation's Tribal Court uh, that has a problem, and uh, I say it's a substance abuse problem, um, the answer is not to pull the child away from the parent, but to provide services for the parent, to provide uh, other supports for the parent, and to do everything that's possible to um, reunify and rehabilitate that family. It may be that the child is temporarily removed and put with an aunt or an uncle um, for a short period of time, but the the goal of the community and the courts is to solve the problem. It's not to pull the child away from the community.
0: Matt?
2: Yes. Well, you know, this is something, obviously, this is the core of the work that we were focused on in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that I was a part of for, you know, two and a half years. And I think it it really boils down to what was said earlier, is that, you know, people should have the right to raise their children. And... I think that's one of the things that was the underpinning of the Indian Child Welfare Act is that Native people should be able to raise their own children, which is sort of it it seems counterintuitive, but you have to understand over 500 years of cultural and institutional racism the, the general assumption was the default was that Native people were not capable of raising children. It really comes down to something as simple as that. And you know, when you get into the issues of race, um, you know, I think those of us in the, in the progressive spectrum of political science sometimes kid ourselves into thinking that we live in a post racial society. That, you know, with the passage of things like the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the Indian Child Welfare Act, and, and other monumental landmark pieces of legislation, that we now live in a post racial society where race does not matter. Well, if people think that racism is gone, all they have to do is go to the news coverage of when we released the report from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and just scan through the reader comments below. I mean, it was unbelievably scathing what people were saying um, about tribal people. So, you know, that's kind of the, the realm that we're working in here, is that, you know, you have to break away from people's instincts about Native peoples and understand that they are people, that they you know, have had a presence here for thousands of years and were very successful and thrived as societies before colonial contact. And that's been the big game changer, is colonial contact and the relationship that's been broken since the 1400s. So projecting forward with how you deal with, with child welfare issues today, I think one of the things that Judge Maynard understands, not only intuitively and instinctively, but from his practical hands-on experience, is that these communities really do not only care about their children, but are really best positioned to take the best care of them. One of the things that we found, you know, in the child welfare system, the state child welfare system, is that even when they meant to do well, they often Could inadvertently make a mess of things because they don't have, they're they're constrained by the number of foster parents that are available. And if you have a family with five children that, you know, the family is in a desperate position, the children have to be removed, and there's no one available immediately in the tribal community, that doesn't necessarily mean that all those children are going to be placed together just based on the logistics of it. And that creates further harm and greater damage. So, you know, the, the role of the tribe or the nation, however you refer to it, is really paramount here. And in getting them, allowing them, not getting them involved, allowing them to be involved in the most intimate way early on is really going to provide you with a faster solution to your child welfare issues within those communities, really allowing them to live as a community, and to take care of their children, keeping them in their culture and allowing them to thrive in their culture. Like I say, it, it sounds so simple to say it out loud, but those are the elements that have been missing now for many, many decades. And I think you know the state does a better job at that than they used to. It's still not perfect. And part of the reason why there are a lot of gaps is that they, You know, the, we have the four tribes. Not all of them have... Tribal courts the way the Penobscots do. And the tribal courts are often where those issues are, are resolved legally and formally within the community, and it stays within the community. And I think that's probably where it best belongs.
0: Sherry, do you have any comment?
3: Well, I agree that that's where it best belongs. And, you know, some of the logistical issues that he's talking about in regard to having access to placements... Um, within the community that there there are efforts to increase the number of foster um, families that are available both on and off reservations so that the child still maintains contact with the community. And I think that um, we've all witnessed a lot of this um, really blatant racism that uh, Secretary Dunlap is talking about that we've um, seen it in regard to every one of the issues that the tribes have brought forth. The commentary has been scathing, has been um, horrific. And when there was uh, the offensive language bill was being uh, debated, I had was driving on the highway and had a tribal bumper sticker on my car and a group of, of young people w- drove by my car and threw... A glass beer bottle at my car as they were driving by and made derogatory comments uh, about the fact that I was a Native person. And so, you know, we have a long way to go in regard to healing those issues. Uh, One of the problems that I think we face is that there are a lot of people who are unwilling to recognize that that problem still exists. And um, in doing so, they are actually preventing any forward movement. So, to be able to have more people come forward and acknowledge, especially people who are in uh, some positions of power, such as our legislators, uh, to acknowledge we have, um, you know, the same some of the same arguments going on right now in regards to VAWA, and you know, which again reaches to the protection of the women and children within our communities. And so, when we have racist attitudes that are preventing us from being able to put in place the types of protections that we are most capable of putting in place for our own people, um, we have larger problems than just the social problems that are leading to these issues coming to the fore. When you have all of those underlying problems, those uh, racist attitudes and obstructionist attitudes in regard to tribal people, it actually hinders our ability to be able to solve our problems. Um, in the ways that are best suited for our people. And so, you know, those issues are all um, connected and they all have to be addressed in order for us to be able to move forward.
0: Exactly. And, uh, you know, the other thing that uh, sort of perpetuates this sort of thinking is, you know, you get articles uh, in papers, newspapers, national newspapers, like the Washington Post, Uh, and there's a guy named... uh, George F. Will, who wrote an opinion on September 2nd, 2015. And the title of, of his opinion is uh, The Blood Stained Indian Child Welfare Act. And uh, he says something like uh, The ICWA forbids blocking payment in an Indian home because of poverty, substance abuse, or non conforming social behavior and this is according to the Goldwater Report, this is in his uh, article, Uh, the ICWA was passed to prevent a real abuse, the taking of Indian children from their homes without justifiable cause, but by protecting tribal sovereignty without stipulating the primary importance of protecting the best interest of the children, the rights of the tribes have essentially erased those of the children and the parents who wish to adopt them.
2: See, I, th- I think that just underscores the level of societal racism that's around us. Mm-hmm. You know, by trying to deflect the interests of the children as if the, the interests of the of the tribe take precedence, what that statement fails to recognize is that they're completely intertwined. That there's, I can never imagine, with what little knowledge I have, and I am not an expert but the the, the the basic observations that I have seen is that I have never seen a tribal family, no matter what type of stress they were under, that would not do anything for their children, and that community would that would not do anything to support them. How are they not intertwined? How do you separate the interests of the children from the interests of the tribe, as that statement purports to do? And I think that's part of the issue here is that you know the the societal model, the Western societal model that we are used to, does not even equate to the societal model of the tribes. The tribes are very large extended families,
1: okay. and
2: we don't we don't have that type of interconnectivity in the post-colonial Western societal model. You know, Judge Maynard, would you agree with that?
4: Absolutely. I think one of the things that we've seen and in, in one of the, the areas that we've had a chance to do some uh, really interesting work with is in a wellness court, and the, uh, we have found in the wellness court that the, one of the biggest factors for success for individuals recovering from substance abuse is reconnecting with the culture and community, that when they have the support, of their community when they are reconnected with the community their road to recovery becomes substantially faster and that is because that's their family and they they don't feel alienated or disconnected um, as I as I listen to Will, George Will's statement um, I think there's a, some real fundamental issues with it one is it, it fails to recognize tribal sovereignty completely, um, that the tribes have the ability as sovereign nations to make their own laws. And, and I will share that I have worked as a, a Bureau of Indian Affairs contract attorney and gone around and done analysis of courts and tribal laws. Um, and I've done 15 of those analyses at this point in time. And every one of them recognizes as part of their child protective laws the best interest of the children within the community. So the statement that that the tribes themselves don't recognize it elevates tribal interests over children's interest is based on a lack of understanding and information as to tribal laws.
0: Yeah, and the other thing that this guy talks about is uh, uh, some of the... Uh, he gives a couple of uh, cases, he cites, where... Uh, the Native children were put back into a native home and uh, were actually uh, killed by uh a boyfriend one was a boyfriend and uh, and the other was uh, was beaten to death by uh, one of the parents so they bring these cases up and the, and they cite uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act as to blame for these, uh, the deaths of these, uh, these children.
2: Well, I, I think, you know, I, my view on that is tragedies do happen. But, you know, when you, when you have situations, and I, and I would quote Donald Soktoma when he came and spoke to the commission and told the story of going to the drugstore to cash a check that they received every month. And the store owner would mock them. There's more of my tax money going to you, you know, worthless Indians. And it was not until he was much older that he came to realize that that check was actually a royalty check for the timber lands that they were leasing for for harvest, and that everybody in the tribe got a royalty from that. It was money that was coming to them. It wasn't welfare. And what Donald said, and I've never forgotten this, he said, when you tell people— that they're worthless long enough, they start to believe it,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that's I think what leads to some of the some of the some of the tragic situations that pe- that befall people. It's not because of the Indian Child Welfare Act; it's because the Indian Child Welfare Act can't cure everything, and that there's so much more that we need to do um, as t- as cultures side by side to better understand each other, mostly on. The post-colonial side um, to better understand how the tribal communities fit into the landscape and what our role is in being neighbors to them, and because everything that we have done since you know the 1400s has been informed by you know the doctrine of discovery that. Tribal communities are to be conquered, are to be destroyed, that they don't deserve anything they have, and that needs to be taken away from them. And that includes children. And, you know, that's why we made the findings that we made that a major component of what's happened to tribal communities over the last several hundred years is a result of cultural genocide, attempting to wipe them out. And, you know, that was one of the hardest things that we had to sell to the public. But, you know, it's odd because people sort of, you know, a lot of people said, well, you're stating the obvious. We already see this because, you know, genocide is not just mass graves and gas chambers. It's also eradicating a language, you know, eradicating an understanding of your own culture. And that's sort of a birthright of ours because we as Europeans have become very, very good at this. Um, And it's shocking as a white person. As a white person, it is shocking to me to comprehend what's happened to my own culture. I can't speak Scots Gaelic. It was not until I was in the middle of this process that I got an email from someone in Scotland saying that I had been featured on the House of Dunlop website, which I didn't even know there was such a thing, and that my name means Fortress at the Bend in the River. That was all erased from my cultural memory. And that is a, a, a trait that we have handed down generation to generation and that we then impose on others. Mm-hmm. And if we understand that as a white post-colonial community, I think that we can change it and we can make it better and we can reverse it. It's truly remarkable that our tribal communities have survived under this much duress over this many hundreds of years and that you can still hear people speaking Passamaquoddy and other languages that, um, you know, I can't can't speak, like I say, I can't speak Scots Gaelic, um, which I think is a theft. That is a true theft from from my spirit. And understanding that, standing in the position that I stand in, I have come to, to believe that there's no way that I can separate myself from the actions of any of my peers or predecessors. But that that gives me power as a public official, as a citizen of this community, to change it, to try to reverse it, um, and part of that is allowing families to raise their children, which is the core point.
0: Eric, any comments?
4: Uh, I think that when you talk about the, the well the core point of allowing families to raise their children is something that is recognized by the Constitution and by the Sup- United States Supreme Court in Troxell versus Granville. Um, which said that there is a recognized 14th Amendment right for families to raise their children without undue governmental influence. And I think by extension, that means that Native American families should be given the right to raise their children without undue governmental interference. Um, And that's where I I am convinced that um, the Goldwater Institute has it all wrong. Has it all wrong? I I also think that Matt is uh, the secretary is, is absolutely correct that one of the the biggest issues that we face in in this state right now is a continuing racism that continues to to infect the relationships between the First Nations and the state, and that that um, that issue has, has not been addressed.
0: Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing that I, I did want to bring up, and we only got maybe 10 minutes or so, but the last thing was uh, this uh, Goldwater Institute, another quote from them, they say that uh, the only basis for forcing these kids to be sent to tribal courts is because they're racially connected. Uh, It's like saying that children of Japanese descent need to be adjudicated by the court of Japan.
3: Well, I think that it's really important for people to recognize that tribal identity under the law is not a racial identity. It's political, that tribes are viewed as sovereign nations. Uh, That's a political distinction. It's not a racial distinction. And as such, they have the rights within their own territories, which has been upheld by the court, to make their own laws and to be ruled by them. And so that statement is just completely out of touch with the reality. It just shows a gross lack of understanding of the political relationship that tribes have with the United States government.
4: Absolutely. The the law is very clear that... Um that relationship was a, a legal status, not based on race.
0: Matt?
2: Uh, I completely agree. I completely agree. I mean, this is one of the things I think that's a real challenge for many in the legal profession is the language of the law versus the people that it was meant to help. And, you know, I think the tribal communities, I think, have a much different read on what the law is meant to do than than many attorneys do, and I know that you know, Judge Maynard Judge Maynard and I have talked about this a lot. So um, I think we, we, you know, we agree on that point that um, you know the the basic core of the Constitution is to protect people, not harm
0: them. Right, and uh, there's a a little quote here from Jack, Jacqueline Petta. I don't know if uh, she's still the executive director, but she was the executive director of the National Congress of American Indians, I think this was a few years ago, she said that uh, this is a colossal misunderstanding of, of tribal treaty rights. Mm-hmm. We were tribal citizens before we were American citizens. And while we recognize each other's government structures, these rights to determine what's best for our people are inherent to us, which I think is a great, uh, a great point.
3: I also think it's important to recognize, you know, what um, Secretary Dunlap was talking about earlier when he was talking about uh, tribal peoples being one big extended family. When we look at our cultural traditions, our core values are incorporated into those cultural teachings. And so when he talked about the fact that uh, you don't see that kind of extended kinship network out in the mainstream culture here in this country... Uh, part of the reason I believe that is has to do with him having lost his ability to speak his own language um, and that those things are all tied together with this with this core cultural values. You know, for us, that's in Dilma um, which teaches us that we're all kin, that we're all related. And uh, even our word for agreement, like entering into agreement, when we talk about treaty, Lagudwagan means entering into a kinship relationship with another, that when we enter into an agreement with them, we have an obligation to treat them as kin, the same way that we would treat our blood relatives. And, you know, all of our stories, all of our cultural teachings are infused with that belief. And so the further we get away from those cultural teachings, the further we get separated from our core values as human beings. And, um, you know, the the importance of being able to maintain those cultural connections to maintain that sense of community, that sense of kinship, that sense of belonging and identity. Um, there are uh, There's statistics on suicide related to Native people that are directly correspondent to the loss of identity, the inability to be yourself and to be accepted out in the world, that uh, young Native people have to juggle all of these identities based on who they're interfacing with. And that's a result of lack of acceptance. We're seeing that in other populations um, where there is a lack of acceptance, these accelerating suicide rates. And so, you know, all of these correlations that we have um, are really about the colonizing population evolving their consciousness. And so, as we start doing um, this larger work, we have to look at the impacts of colonization and. Um, Uh, Secretary Dunlap keeps saying post-colonial society. I don't think we've reached that place yet. I think that we are still being subjected to characteristics of colonization on a daily basis and that it's so deeply um, embedded into the way of being of the mainstream culture, um, these ideas of conquest and colonization, that they've become so normalized that people don't even recognize that they're still engaged in these behaviors today. They just call them by a different name. And so we're going to have to get over all of those things and start really decolonizing on uh, multiple levels to be able to move beyond some of the attitudes that are driving these behaviors forward.
0: Okay, I'll take that as your closing statement, Sherry. Uh, we've got about one minute apiece, I guess, uh, for for you to say something, Eric, and then for you, Matt.
4: I, um, I guess that the the close for me is that I am – I I find that the Goldwater Institute's attack on ICWA um, is nothing more than a, an attack on tribal sovereignty, um, which has to be stopped. Um, to, to allow a continuing attack on, on the tribal – on ICWA basically would be to allow – the mainstream to come in and take tribal children away from the tribes and, and eradicate the tribes themselves.
0: Okay. Matt?
2: I think, you know, I think the Indian Child Welfare Act was a huge step forward. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was a step forward. I think what the Goldwater Institute statement indicates is that we still have an awful long way to go.
0: Okay. Um, I want to thank my guest, Eric Minert, Chief Judge of the Penobscot Nation Tribal Court. Uh, and the Penobscot Nation tribal member and indigenous rights attorney, Sharon Mitchell, and Secretary of State Matt Dunlop. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Webinacci Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his new CD, DreamWork, and our engineer is Joe Greenman. Please join us again next month for another Webenaki Windows.
1: You're listening to WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming at WERU.org. It's 41.6 degrees outside our studio in Orland, Maine. Beautiful downtown Orland. Actually, East Orland, but still part of Orland. And we like being part of Orland. Well, let's take a quick look at the weather. Partly sunny for the rest of the day with a high near 44. Uh, northeast winds 8 to 10. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 33. Southeast winds 3 to 6 miles an hour. Partly sunny Wednesday with a high near 43. South 8 to 13 miles an hour. Are all news sources reliable? Join the Democracy
3: Forum discussion 10 to 11 a.m. on Friday, April 21st. John Christie.